Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 501. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, yes, show 501, just rocketing past 500. Just want to say, honestly, before we go any further, a big, huge thank you to Jeremy and Ralph for kind of getting this little celebration all put together and everything like that. You know what I mean? I know because it's been close at times as well, you know, whether we can kind of pull off this triple, you know, like having Haldeman, Hall Nelson, and now on today's show, Robert Silverberg. You know, it was all. So a big thank you, do you know what I mean? There's been a lot of work behind the scenes that, um, frankly, I wasn't involved in. And I just want to say my total appreciation them two guys. Thank you so much, gentlemen. So we are on the show 501, which is, like say, rocketing past it. Do you know what I mean? Let's aim for another 10 years, at, at least, with Starship's over. And we're going to kick it off with Silverberg. Why not? You know what I mean? Five, show 501. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show, because we've got, I was supposed to play at the end of last week, because it was the end of the month, Mr. J.J. Campanella, and I've had to kind of, that's the first year, time in 10 year, knocked him off the top spot, knocked him off that show. So we've got Mr. J.J. Campanella at the end of the show, with science news. But first we have Mr. Robert Silverberg, the tremendous story, Needle in a Time Stack. I kind of sat down to this show, you know, and I've known this story's kind of been coming. We're being a little bit kind of pushed and a little bit, you know what I mean? It's a bit of a... But then I realised it was this story, Neil in a Time Stack. This is one of my favourite Silverberg stories of all time. 
And there's Jeremy's just got it there and, you know, didn't even mention it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, we've got, we've got a Silverberg story. Man! So we'll jump straight into the main fiction. Like I say, it's called Needle in a Time Stack by Robert Silverberg, originally published in Asimov's. Robert Silverberg has been a professional writer since 1955 and is widely known for his science fiction and fantasy stories. He is the winner of four Hugo, six Nebula Awards and three Locust Awards. He was named to the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 1999 and was designated as a Grandmaster by the Science Fiction Writers of America in 2004. His books and stories have been translated into 40 languages. Among his best titles are Nightwings, Dying Inside, The Book of Skulls, and the three volumes of the Majipur Cycle, Lord Valentine's Castle, Majipur Chronicles, and Valentine Pontifex. He and his wife Karen and a sorted population of cats live in the San Francisco Bay Area in a sprawling house surrounded by exotic plants. He can be found online at Quasi Official Robert Silverberg website. This story is narrated by Robert A. K. Gonyo. Robert A. is a theatre director, actor, sound designer, voiceover artist and musician residing in Queens. He is the founder and director of the Co-op Theatre East which is co-optheatreeast.org and producer of the Go See a Show, New York City's independent theatre podcast, com, And you can find him at robertgoyo.com. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Needle in a Time Stack by Robert Silverberg Between one moment and the next, the taste of cotton came into his mouth and Mickelson knew that Tommy Hamilton had been tinkering with his past again. The cotton-in-the-mouth sensation was the standard tip-off for Mickelson. 
For other people, it might be a ringing in the ears, a tremor of the little finger, a tightness in the shoulders. Whatever the symptom, it always meant the same thing. Your time track has been meddled with. Your life has been retroactively transformed. It happened all the time. One of the little annoyances of modern life, everyone always said. Generally, the changes didn't amount to much. But Tommy Hamilton was out to destroy Mickelson's marriage, or more accurately, he was determined to unhappen it altogether, and that went beyond Mickelson's limits of tolerance. In something close to panic, he phoned home to find out if he still had Janine. Her lovely features blossomed on the screen. Glossy dark hair, elegant cheekbones, cool sardonic eyes. She looked tense and strained, and Mickelson knew she had felt the backlash of this latest attempt, too. Nick, she said, is it a phasing? I think so. Tommy's taken another whack at us, and Christ only knows how much chaos he's caused this time. Let's run through everything. All right, Mickelson said. What's your name? Janine. And mine, Nick. Nicholas Perry Mickelson. You see, nothing important has changed. Are you married? Yes, of course, darling, to you. Keep going. What's our address? 11 Lantana Crescent. Do we have children? Dana and Elise. Dana's five, Elise is three. Our cat's name is Minibel, and... Okay, Mickelson said, relieved. That much checks out. But I tasted the cotton, Janine. Where has he done it to us this time? What's been changed? It can't be anything major, love. We'll find it if we keep checking. Just stay calm. Calm, yes. He closed his eyes. He took a deep breath. The little annoyances of modern life, he thought. In the old days, when time was just a linear flow from then to now, did anyone get bored with all that stability? For better or for worse, it was different now. You go to bed a Dartmouth man and wake up Columbia, never the wiser. You board a plane that blows up over Cyprus, but then your insurance agent goes back and gets you to miss the flight. In the new fluid way of life, there was always a second chance, a third, a fourth. Now that the past was open to anyone, with the price of a ticket. But what good is any of that, Mickelson wondered, if Tommy Hamilton can use it to disappear me and marry Janine again himself? They punched for readouts and checked all their vital data against what they remembered. When your past is altered through time phasing, all records of your life are automatically altered too, of course. But there's a period of two or three hours when memories of your previous existence still linger in your brain, like the phantom twitches of an amputated limb. They checked the date of Mickelson's birth, parents' names, his nine genetic coordinates, his educational record. Everything seemed right. But when they got to their wedding date, the readout said 8 Feb 2017. And Mickelson heard warning chimes in his mind. I remember a summer wedding, he said. Outdoors, in Dan Levy's garden, the hills all dry and brown. The 24th of August. So do I, Nick. The hills wouldn't have been brown in February, but I can see it, that hot, dusty day. 
then five months of our marriage are gone, Janine. He couldn't unmarry us altogether, but he managed to hold us up from summer to winter. Rage made his head spin, and he had to ask his desk for a quick buzz of tranks. Etiquette called for one to be cool about a phasing. But he couldn't be cool when the phasing was a deliberate and malevolent blow at the center of his life. He wanted to shout, to break things, to kick Tommy Hamilton's ass. He wanted his marriage left alone. He said, You know what I'm going to do one of these days? I'm going to go back about 50 years and eradicate Tommy completely. Just arrange things so his parents never get to meet. And no, Nick, you mustn't. I know, but I'd love to. He knew he couldn't, and not just because it would be murder. It was essential that Tommy Hamilton be born and grow up and meet Janine and marry her so that when the marriage came apart, she would meet and marry Mickelson. If he changed Hambleton's past, he would change hers, too. And if he changed hers, he would change his own, and anything might happen. Anything. But all the same, he was furious. Five months of our past, Janine. We don't need them, love. Keeping the present and the future safe is the main priority. By tomorrow, we'll always think we were married in February of 2017, and it won't matter. Promise me you won't try to phase him. I hate the idea that he can simply... So do I. But I want you to promise you'll leave things as they are. Well, promise? All right, he said. I promise. Little phasings happened all the time. Someone in Illinois makes a trip to 11th century Arizona and sets up tiny ripple currents in time that have a tangential and peripheral effect on a lot of lives. And someone in California finds himself driving a silver BMW instead of a gray Toyota. No one minded trifling changes like that. But this was the third time in the last 12 months, so far as Mickelson was able to tell that Tommy Hamilton had committed a deliberate phasing intended to break the chain of events that had brought about Mickelson's marriage to Janine. The first phasing happened on a splendid spring day. Coming home from work, sudden taste of cotton in mouth, sense of mysterious disorientation. Mickelson walked down the steps looking for his old ginger tomcat, Gus, who always ran out to greet him as though he thought he was a dog. No Gus. Instead, a calico female, very pregnant, sitting placidly in the front hall. Where's Gus? Mickelson asked Janine. Gus? Gus who? Our cat? You mean Max? Gus, he said. Sort of orange, crooked tail. That's right, but Max is his name. I'm sure it's Max. He must be around somewhere. Look, here's Minnie Belle. Janine knelt and stroked the fat calico. Minnie Belle, where's Max? Gus, Mickelson said. Not Max. And who's this Minnie Belle? She's our cat, Nick, Janine said, sounding surprised. They stared at each other. Something's happened, Nick. I think we've been time-phased, he said. Sensation as of dropping through trap door. Shock. Confusion. Terror.
followed by hasty and scary inventory of basic life data to see what had changed. Everything appeared in order, except for the switch of cats. He didn't remember having a female calico. Neither did Janine, although she had accepted the presence of the cat without surprise. As for Gus, Max, he was getting foggier about his name, and Janine couldn't even remember what he looked like. But she did recall that he had been a wedding gift from some close friend, and Mickelson remembered that the friend was Gus Stark, for whom they had named him and Janine was then able to dredge up the dimming fact that Gus was a close friend of Mickelson's and also of Hamilton and Janine in the days when they were married, and that Gus had introduced Janine to Mickelson ten years ago when they were all on holiday in Hawaii. Mickelson accessed the household callmaster and found no Gus Stark listed, so the phasing had erased him from their roster of friends. The general phone directory turned up a Gus Stark in Costa Mesa. Mickelson called him and got a freckle-faced man with fading red hair, who looked more or less familiar. But he didn't know Mickelson at all, and only after some puzzling around in his memory did he decide that they had been distantly acquainted way back when, but had had some kind of trifling quarrel and had lost touch with each other years ago. That's not how I think... I remember it, Mickelson said. I remember us as friends for years, really close. You and Donna and Janine and I were out to dinner only last week, is what I remember, over in Newport Beach. Donna? Your wife. My wife's name is Karen. Jesus, this has been one hell of a phasing, hasn't it? He didn't sound upset. I'll say... Blew away your marriage, our friendship, and who knows what all else. Well, these things happen. Listen, if I can help you any way, fella, just call. But right now, Karen and I were on our way out, and... Yeah, sure, sorry to have bothered you, Miggleson told him. He blanked the screen. Donna. Karen. Gus. Max. He looked at Janine. Tommy did it. She said. She had it all figured out. Tommy, she said, had never forgiven Mickelson for marrying her. He wanted her back. He still sent her birthday cards, coy little gifts, postcards from exotic ports. You never mentioned them, Mickelson said. She shrugged. I thought you'd only get annoyed. You've always disliked Tommy. No, Mickelson said. I think he's interesting in his oddball way, flamboyant, unusual. What I dislike is his unwillingness to accept the notion that you stopped being his wife a dozen years ago. You'd dislike him more if you knew how hard he's been trying to get me back. Oh? When we broke up, she said, he phased me four times. This was before I met you. He kept jaunting back to our final quarrel, trying to patch it up so that the separation wouldn't have happened. I began feeling the phasings, and I knew what must be going on. And I told him to quit it, or I'd report him and get his jaunt license revoked. That scared him, I guess, because he's been pretty well behaved ever since, except for all the little hints and innuendos and invitations to leave you and marry him again. Christ, Mickelson said. 
How long were you and he married? Six months? Seven. But he's an obsessive personality. He never lets go. And now he's started phasing again? That's my guess. He's probably decided that you're the obstacle, that I really do still love you, that I want to spend the rest of my life with you. So he needs to make us unmeet. He's taken his first shot by somehow engineering a breach between you and your friend Gus a dozen years back, a breach so severe that you never really became friends, and Gus never fixed you up with me. Only it didn't work out the way Tommy hoped. We went to that party at Dave Cushman's place, and I got pushed into the pool on top of you, and you introduced yourself, and one thing led to another, and here we still are. Not all of us are, Mickelson said. My friend Gus is married to somebody else now. That didn't seem to trouble him much. Maybe not, but he isn't my friend anymore either, and that troubles me. My whole past is at Tommy Hamilton's mercy, Janine. And Gus the cat is gone too. Gus was a damned good cat. I miss him. Five minutes ago, you weren't sure whether his name was Gus or Max. Two hours from now, you won't know you ever had any such cat, and it won't matter at all. But suppose the same thing had happened to you and me as happened to Gus and Donna? It didn't, though. It might next time, Mickelson said. But it didn't. The next time, which was about six months later, they came out of it still married to each other. What they lost was their collection of 20th century artifacts, the black-and-white television set and the funny old dial telephone and the transistor radio and the little computer with the typewriter keyboard. All those treasures vanished between one instant and the next leaving Mickelson with the telltale cottony taste in his mouth, Janine with a short-lived tick below her left eye, and both of them with the nagging awareness that a phasing had occurred. At once they did what they could to see where the alteration had been made. For the moment they both remembered the artifacts they once had owned, and how eagerly they had collected them in 21 and 22, when the craze for such things was just beginning but there were no sales receipts in their files, and already their memories of what they had bought were becoming blurry and contradictory. There was a grouping of glittery sonic sculptures to the corner now, where the artifacts had been. What change had been effected in the pattern of their past to put those things in place of the others? They never really were sure. There was no certain way of knowing. But Mickelson had a theory. The big expense he remembered for 2021 was the time jaunt that he and Janine had taken to Aztec, Mexico, just before she got pregnant with Dana. Things had been a little wobbly between the Mickelsons back then, and the time jaunt was supposed to be a second honeymoon. But their guide on the jaunt had been a hot little item named Elena Schmidt, who had made a very determined play for Mickelson, and who had had him considering for at least half an hour of lively fantasy, leaving Janine for her. Suppose, he said, that on our original time track we never went back to the Aztecs at all, but put the money into the artifact collection. But then Tommy went back and maneuvered things to get us interested in time jaunting, and at the same time persuaded that Schmidt cookie to show an interest in me. We couldn't afford both the antiques 
and the trip. We opted for the trip. Elena did her little number on me. It didn't cause the split that Tommy was hoping for, and now we have some gaudy memories of Moctezuma's empire and no collection of early electronic devices. What do you think? Makes sense, Janine said. Will you report him or should I? But we have no proof, Nick. He frowned. Proving a charge of time crime, he knew, was almost impossible. And risky besides. The very act of investigating the alleged crime could cause an even worse phase shift and scramble their pasts beyond repair. To enter the past is like poking a baseball bat into a spider web. It can't be done subtly or delicately. Do we just sit and wait for Tommy to figure out a way to get rid of me that really works? Mickelson asked. We can't just confront him with suspicions, Nick. You did it once. Long ago. The risks are greater now. We have more past to lose. What if he's not responsible? What if he gets scared of being blamed for something that's just coincidence and really sets out to phase us? He's so damned volatile, so unstable. If he feels threatened, he's likely to do anything. He could wreck our lives entirely. If he feels threatened, what about... Please, Nick. I've got a hunch Tommy won't try it again. He's had two shots and they've both failed. He'll quit now. I'm sure he will. Grudgingly, Mickelson yielded, and after a time he stopped worrying about a third phasing. Over the next few weeks, other effects of the second phasing kept turning up the way losses gradually make themselves known after a burglary. The same thing had happened after the first one. A serious attempt at altering the past could never have just one consequence. There was always a host of trivial, or not-so-trivial, secondary shifts, a ramifying web of transformations reaching out into any number of other lives. New chains of associations were formed in the Mickelsons' lives as a result of the erasure of their plan to collect electronic artifacts and the substitution of a trip to pre-Columbian Mexico. People they had met on that trip now were good friends, with whom they exchanged gifts, spent other holidays, shared their burdens and joys of parenthood. A certain hollowness at first marked all those newly engrafted old friendships, making them seem curiously insubstantial, and marked by odd inconsistencies. But after a time, everything felt real again. Everything appeared to fit. Then the third phasing happened, the one that pushed the beginning of their marriage from August to the following February, and did six or seven other troublesome little things, as they shortly discovered, to the contours of their existence. I'm going to talk to him, Mickelson said. Nick, don't do anything foolish. I don't intend to. But he's got to be made to see that this can't go on. Remember that he can be dangerous if he's forced into a corner, Janine said. Don't threaten him. Don't push him. I'll tickle him, Mickelson said. He met Hamilton for drinks at the top of the marina, Hamilton's favorite pub swiveling at the end of a jointed stalk a thousand feet long rising from the harbor at Balboa Lagoon. Hamilton was there when Mickelson came in. A small, sleek man, 
six inches shorter than Mickelson, with a slick, confident manner. He was the richest man Mickelson knew, gliding through life on one of the big microprocessor fortunes of two generations back, and that in itself made him faintly menacing, as though he might try simply to buy back one of these days the wife he had loved and lost a dozen years ago when all of them had been so very young. Hamilton's overriding passion, Mickelson knew, was time travel. He was an inveterate jaunter, a compulsive jaunter, in fact, with that faintly hyperthyroid, goggle-eyed look that frequent travelers get. He was always either just back from a jaunt or getting his affairs in order for his next one. It was as though the only use he had for the humdrum real-time event horizon was to serve as his springboard into the past. That was odd. What was odder still was where he jaunted. Mickelson could understand people who went zooming off to watch the Battle of Waterloo or shot a bundle on a first-hand view of the Sack of Rome. If he had anything like Hamilton's money, that was what he would do. But according to Janine, Hamilton was forever going back seven weeks in time, or maybe to last Christmas, or occasionally to his 11th birthday party. Time travel as tourism held no interest for him. Let others roam the ferny glades of the Mesozoic. He spent fortunes doubling back along his own time track, and never went any when other. The purpose of Tommy Hamilton's time travel, it seemed, was to edit his past to make his life more perfect. He went back to eliminate every little contretemps and faux pas, to recover fumbles, to take advantage of the new opportunities that hindsight provides, to retouch, to correct, to emend. To Mickelson, that was crazy, but also somehow charming. Hamilton was nothing if not charming, and Mickelson admired anyone who could invent his own new species of obsessive behavior instead of going in for the standard hand-washing routines or stamp-collecting or sitting with your back to the wall in restaurants. The moment Mickelson arrived, Hamilton punched the auto bar for cocktails and said, "'Splendid to see you, Mickelson. How's the elegant Janine?' "'Elegant?' What a lucky man you are. The one great mistake of my life was letting that woman slip through my grasp. For which I remain forever grateful, Tommy. I've been working hard lately to hang on to her, too. Hamilton's eyes widened. Yes? Are you two having problems? Not with each other. Time track troubles. You know, we were caught in a couple of phasings last year. Pretty serious ones. Now there's been another one. We lost five months of our marriage. Ah, the little annoyances of modern life, Mickelson said. Yes, a very familiar phrase. But these are what I'd call frightening annoyances. I don't need to tell you, of all people, what a splendid woman Janine is. How terrifying it is to me to think of losing her in some random twitch of the time track. Of course, I quite understand. I wish I understood these phasings. They're driving us crazy. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. 
He studied Hamilton closely, searching for some trace of guilt or at least uneasiness. But Hamilton remained serene. How can I be of help? Mickelson said, I thought that perhaps you, with all your vast experience in the theory and practice of time jaunting, could give me some clue to what's causing them so that I can head the next one off. Hamilton shrugged elaborately. My dear Nick, it could be anything. There's no reliable way of tracing phasing effects back to their cause. All our lives are interconnected in ways we never suspect. You say this last phasing delayed your marriage by a few months? Well, then suppose that as a result of the phasing, you decided to take a last bachelor fling and went off for a weekend in Banff, say, and met some lovely person with whom you spent three absolutely casual and non-significant but delightful days, thereby preventing her from meeting someone else that weekend with whom in the original time track she had fallen in love and married. You then went home and married Janine a little later than originally scheduled and lived happily ever after. But the Banff woman's life was totally switched around, all as a consequence of the phasing that delayed your wedding. Do you see? There's never any telling how a shift in one chain of events can cause interlocking upheavals in the lives of utter strangers. So I realize. But why should we be hit with three phasings in a year, each one jeopardizing the whole structure of our marriage? I'm sure I don't know, said Hamilton. I suppose it's just bad luck. And bad luck always changes, don't you think? Probably you've been at the edge of some nexus of negative phases that has just about run its course. He smiled dazzlingly. Let's hope so, anyway. Would you care for another filtered rum? He was smooth, Mickelson thought, and impervious. There was no way to slip past his defenses, and even a direct attack, an outright accusation that he was the one causing the phasings, would most likely bring into play a whole new line of defense. Mickelson did not intend to risk that. A man who used time jaunting so ruthlessly to tidy up his past was too slippery to confront. Pressed, Hamilton would simply deny everything and hasten backward to clear away any traces of his crime that might remain. In any case, making an accusation of time crime stick was exceedingly difficult, because the crime by definition had to take place on a track that no longer existed. Mickelson chose to retreat. He accepted another drink from Hamilton. They talked in a desultory way for a while about phasing theory, the weather the stock market, the excellences of the woman they both had married, and the good old days of 2014 or so when they all used to hang out down in dear old La Jolla, living golden lives of wondrous irresponsibility. Then he extricated himself from the conversation and headed for home in a dark and brooding mood. He had no doubt that Hamilton would strike again, perhaps quite soon. How could he be held at bay? Some sort of preemptive strike, Mickelson wondered? Some bold leap into the past that would neutralize the menace of Tommy Hamilton forever? Chancy, Mickelson thought. You could lose as much as you gained sometimes in that sort of maneuver. But perhaps it was the only hope. He spent the next few days trying to work out a strategy. Something that would get rid of Hamilton without 
disrupting the frail chain of circumstance that bound his own life to that of Janine. Was it possible? Mickelson stretched out ideas, rejected them, tried again. He began to think he saw a way. Then came a new phasing, on a warm and brilliantly sunny morning that struck him like a thunderbolt and left him dazed and numbed. When he finally shook away the grogginess, he found himself in a bachelor flat ninety stories above Mission Bay, a thick taste of cotton in his mouth, and bewildering memories already growing thin of a lovely wife and two kids and a cat and a sweet home in mellow old Corona del Mar. Janine? Dana? Elise? Minibel? Gone. All gone. He knew that he had been living in this condo since 22, after the breakup with Yvonne, and that Melanie was supposed to be dropping in about six. That much was reality. And yet another reality still lingered in his mind. Fading. Vanishing. So it had happened. Hamilton had really done it this time. There was no time for panic, or even for pain. He spent the first half hour desperately scribbling down notes, every detail of his lost life that he still remembered, phone numbers, addresses, names, descriptions. He set down whatever he could recall of his life with Janine, and of the series of phasings that had led up to this one. Just as he was running dry, the telephone rang. Janine, he prayed. But it was Gus Stark. Listen, he began. Donna and I got to cancel for tonight on account of she's got a bad headache, but I hope you and Melanie aren't too disappointed, and... He paused. Hey, guy, are you okay? There's been a bad phasing, Mickelson said. Uh-oh. I've got to find Janine. Janine? Janine. Carter, Mickelson said. Slender, high cheekbones, dark hair, you know. Janine, said Stark. Do I know what you mean? Hey, you and Melanie on the outs? I thought... This has nothing to do with Melanie, said Mickelson. Janine Carter. Gus grinned. You mean Tommy Hamilton's girl? The little rich guy who was part of the La Jolla crowd ten, twelve years back when... That's the one. Where do you think I'll find her now? Married Hamilton, I think. Moved to the Riviera, unless I'm mistaken. Look, about tonight, Nick... Screw tonight, Mickelson said. Get off the phone. I'll talk to you later. He broke the circuit and put the phone into search mode, all directories worldwide. Thomas and Janine Hamilton. While he waited, the shock and anguish of loss began at last to get to him, and he started to sweat. His hands shook. His heart raced in double time. I won't find her, he thought. He's got her hidden behind seven layers of privacy networks, and it's crazy to think the phone number is listed, for Christ's sake, and... The telephone. He hit the button. Janine calling this time. She looked stunned and disoriented, as though she were working hard to keep her eyes in focus. Nick? She said faintly. Oh, God, Nick, it's you, isn't it? Where are you? A villa outside Nice... In Copdam Teeb, actually, oh, Nick, the kids, they're gone, aren't they? Dana, Elise, they never were born. Isn't that so? I'm afraid it is, 
He really nailed us this time. I can still remember just as though they were real. As though we spent ten years together. Oh, Nick. Tell me how to find you. I'll be on the next plane out of San Diego. She was silent a moment. No. No, Nick. What's the use? We aren't the same people we were when we were married. An hour or two more and, and we'll forget we ever were together. Janine. We've got no past left, Nick. And no future. Let me come to you. I'm Tommy's wife. My past's with him. Oh, Nick, I'm so sorry. So awfully sorry. I can still remember... A little. How it was with us. The fun. The running along the beach. The kids. The little fat calico cat. But it's all gone, isn't it? I've got my life here. You've got yours. I just wanted to tell you. We can try to put it back together. You don't love Tommy. You and I belong with each other. We... He's a lot different, Nick. He's not the man you remember from the La Jolla days. Kinder. More considerate, more of a human being, you know? It's been ten years, after all. Mickelson closed his eyes and gripped the edge of the couch to keep from falling. It's been two hours, he said. Tommy phased us. He just tore up our life, and we can't ever have that part of it back, but still, we can salvage something, Janine. We can rebuild. If you'll just get the hell out of that villa and... I'm sorry, Nick. Her voice was tender, throaty, distant, almost unfamiliar. Oh, God, Nick, it's such a mess. I loved you so. I'm sorry, Nick. I'm so sorry. The screen went blank. Mickelson had not time-jaunted in years, not since the Aztec trip, and he was amazed at what it cost now, but he was carrying the usual credit cards, and evidently his credit lines were okay, because they approved his application in five minutes. He told them where he wanted to go and how he wanted to look, and for another few hundred, the makeup man worked him over, taking that dusting of early gray out of his hair and smoothing the lines from his face and spraying him with the good old Southern California tan that you tend to lose when you're in your late thirties and spending more time in your office than on the beach. He looked at least eight years younger, close enough to pass. As long as he took care to keep from running into his own younger self while he was back there, there should be no problems. He stepped into the cubicle and sweet-scented fog enshrouded him. And when he stepped out again, it was a mild December day in the year 2012, with a faint hint of rain in the northern sky. Only 14 years back, and yet the world looked prehistoric to him. The clothing and the haircuts and the cars all wrong. The buildings heavy and clumsy. The advertisements floating overhead offering archaic and absurd products in blaring gaudy colors. Odd that the world of 2012 had not looked so crude to him the first time he had lived through it. But then the present never looks crude, he thought, except through the eyes of the future. He enjoyed the strangeness of it. It told him that he had really gone backward in time. It was like walking into an old movie. 
He felt very calm. All the pain was behind him now. He remembered nothing of the life that he had lost, only that it was important to him that he take certain countermeasures against the man who had stolen something precious from him. He rented a car and drove quickly up to La Jolla. As he expected, everybody was at the beach club except for young Nick Mickelson, who was back in Palm Beach with his parents. Mickelson had put this jaunt together quickly, but not without careful planning. They were all amazed to see him. Gus, Dan, Leo, Christy, Sal, the whole crowd. How young they looked. Kids, just kids, barely into their twenties. All that hair, all that baby fat. He had never before realized how young you were when you were young. Hey, Gus said. I thought you were in Florida. Someone handed him a popper. Someone slipped a capsule to his ear and raucous, overloud music began to pound against his cheekbone. He made the rounds, grinning, hugging, explaining that Palm Beach had been a bore, that he had come back early to be with the gang. Where's Yvonne? he asked. She'll be here in a little while, Christy said. Tommy Hamilton walked in five minutes after Mickelson. For one jarring instant, Mickelson thought that the man he saw was the Hamilton of his own time, thirty-five years old, but no. There were little signs and certain lack of tension in this man's face, a certain callowness about the lips that marked him as younger. The truth, Mickelson realized, is that Hamilton had never looked really young, that he was ageless, timeless, sleek and plump and unchanging. It would have been very satisfying to Mickelson to plunge a knife into that impeccably shaven throat. But murder was not his style, nor was it an ideal solution to his problem. Instead, he called Hamilton aside, bought him a drink, and said quietly, I just thought you'd like to know that Yvonne and I are breaking up. Really, Nick? Oh, that's so sad. I thought you two were the most solid couple here. We were. We were, but... It's all over, man. I'll be with someone else New Year's Eve. Don't know who, but it won't be Yvonne. Hamilton looked solemn. That's so sad, Nick. No, not for me. And not for you. Mickelson smiled and nudged Hamilton amiably. Look, Tommy, it's no secret to me that you've had your eye on Yvonne for months. She knows it, too. I just wanted to let you know that I'm stepping out of the picture. I'm very gracefully withdrawing, no hard feelings at all. And if she asks my advice, I'll tell her that you're absolutely the best man she could find. I mean it, Tommy. That's very decent of you, old fellow. That's extraordinary. I want her to be happy, Mickelson said. Yvonne showed up just as night was falling. Mickelson had not seen her for years, and he was startled at how uninteresting she seemed, how bland, how unformed, almost adolescent. Of course, she was very pretty, close-cropped blonde hair, merry greenish-blue eyes, pert little nose, but she seemed girlish and alien to him, and he wondered how he could ever have become so involved with her. But of course, all that was before Janine. Mickelson's unscheduled return from Palm Beach surprised her, but not very much. 
And when he took her down to the beach to tell her that he had come to realize that she was really in love with Hamilton, and he was not going to make a fuss about it, she blinked and said sweetly, In love with Tommy? Well, I suppose I could be, though I never actually saw it like that. But I could give it a try, couldn't I? That is, if you truly are tired of me, Nick. She didn't seem offended. She didn't seem heartbroken. She didn't seem to care much at all. He left the club soon afterward and got an express fax message off to his younger self in Palm Beach. Yvonne has fallen for Tommy Hamilton. However upset you are, for God's sake, get over it fast. And if you happen to meet a young woman named Janine Carter, give her a close look. You won't regret it, believe me. I'm in a position to know. He signed it, a friend, but added a little squiggle in the corner that had always been his own special signature glyph. He didn't dare go further than that. He hoped young Nick would be smart enough to figure out the score. Not a bad hour's work, he decided. He drove back to the jaunt shop in downtown San Diego and hopped back to his proper point in time. There was the taste of cotton in his mouth when he emerged. So it feels that way even when you phase yourself, he thought. He wondered what changes he had brought about by his jaunt. As he remembered it, he had made the hop in order to phase himself back into a marriage with a woman named Janine, who apparently he had loved quite considerably until she had been snatched away from him in a phasing. Evidently, the unfazing had not happened, because he knew he was still unmarried, with three or four regular companions, Cindy, Melanie, Elena, and someone else, and none of them was named Janine. Paula, yes, that was the other one. Yet he was carrying a note, already starting to fade, that said, You won't remember any of this, but you were married in 2016, or 17, to the former Janine Carter, Tommy Hamilton's ex-wife, and however much you may like your present life, you were a lot better off when you were with her. Maybe so, Mickelson thought. God knows he was getting weary of the bachelor life, and now that Gus and Donna were making it legal, he was the only singleton left in the whole crowd. That was a little awkward. But he hadn't ever met anyone he genuinely wanted to spend the rest of his life with, or even as much as a year with. So he had been married, had he, before the phasing? Janine? How strange, how unlike him. He was home before dark, showered, shaved, dressed, headed to the top of the marina. Tommy Hamilton and Yvonne were in town, and he had agreed to meet them for drinks. Hadn't seen them for years, not since Tommy had taken over his brother's villa on the Riviera. Good old Tommy, Mickelson thought. Great to see him again. And Yvonne. He recalled her clearly, little snub-nosed blonde. Good game of tennis. Trim, compact body. He'd been pretty hot for her himself, eleven or twelve years ago, back before Adrian, before Charlene, before Georgiana, before Nedra, before Cindy, Melanie, Elena, Paula. Good to see them both again. He stepped into the skylift and went shooting blithely up the long swivel stalk of the gilded little cupola high above the lagoon. Hamilton and Yvonne were already there. 
Tommy hadn't changed much. Same old, smooth, slickly dressed little guy. But Mickelson was astonished at how time and money had altered Yvonne. She was poised, chic, sinuous, all that baby fat burned away. And when she spoke, there was the smallest hint of a French accent in her voice. Mickelson embraced them both and let himself be swept off to the bar. So glad I was able to find you, Hamilton said. It's been years, years, Nick. Practically forever. Still going great with the women, are you? More or less, Mickelson said. And you, still running back in time to wipe your nose three days ago, Tommy? Hamilton chuckled. Oh, I don't do much of that anymore. <laughs> Yvonne and I were to the fall of Troy last winter, but the short hop stuff doesn't interest me these days. I... Oh, how amazing. What is it? Miggleson asked, seeing Hamilton's gaze go past him into the darker corners of the room. An old friend, Hamilton said. I'm sure it's she, someone I once knew briefly, glancingly. He looked toward Yvonne and said, I met her a few months after you and I began seeing each other love. Of course there was nothing to it, but there could have been. There could have been. A distant, wistful look swiftly crossed Hamilton's features and was gone. His smile returned. He said, You should meet her, Nick. If it's really she, I know she'll be just your type. How amazing. After all these years, come with me, man. He seized Mickelson by the wrist and drew him, astounded, across the room. Janine? Hamilton cried. Janine Carter? She was a dark-haired woman, elegant, perhaps a year or two younger than Mickelson, with cool, perceptive eyes. She looked up, surprised. Tommy, is that you? Of course, of course. That's my wife, Yvonne, over there. And this, this is one of my oldest and dearest friends, Nick Mickelson. Nick? Janine? She stared up at him. This sounds absurd, she said. But don't I know you from somewhere? Mickelson felt a warm flood of mysterious energy surging through him as their eyes met. It's a long story, he said. Let's have a drink, and I'll tell you all about it. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Robert Silverberg's. Robert, sir, Bob, thank you so much. Honestly, thank you so much. And Robert for narrating as well. Thank you. Wow, man, thank you so much. I know we kind of, you know, <laughs> put the screws on, but thank you so much for coming through. Just a beautiful narration. Gentlemen, thank you so much indeed. So I normally say it's the end of the month, but it's not. It's the beginning of the month, but it's still Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news, Jim, sir. Greetings and hyper-iterative resolutions, my oceanically matronic listeners, and welcome to this August 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this subcutaneously exasperating science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome to the dog days of summer. I've spent the last two weeks in Alaska, where dogs do not get their summer days. The first week, I attended the annual Plant Growth Regulatory Society of America conference in Anchorage, and the second week, I was just a tourist. The most wild part of the United States was lovely and amazing. 
but my favorite part was the average temperature of about 60 degrees Fahrenheit every day. It went into the 50s and even 40s at night. Many of you warm weather lovers out there may think me insane, but I treasured my time in Alaska more than I did any trip to Hawaii, probably because I never sweat once while I was in Alaska. I guess I'm just cold-blooded. Before I go on with any science story, let me make some remarks about the Plant Growth Substances Conference that I attended in Anchorage. I was more than a bit disappointed at the Plant Growth Regulatory Society of America's conference this year. Perhaps I was oversensitized by the novel I was reading during the conference. More on that in a second. As far as I can see, the PGRSA has pretty much become a platform for the chemical industry that provides herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, and artificial growth enhancers and inducers. Most of the scientists attending were from industry, not from academia. Most of these scientists gave talks about how this or that artificial chemical, not found in nature, would enhance growth of just about any crop you can think of, from garden flowers to grapes. There was actually a plenary talk from a government wonk who described for 50 minutes how best to get your new questionable compound accepted for use by the FDA or the USDA. And I was, well, less than charmed, to say the least. When I presented my own work on the molecular evolution of a particular gene that helps regulate plant growth, I was stared at like I had grown another head. When the inevitable questions came about the practical use of such research, I rather hotly answered that the basic research into the nature of the universe does not need a practical use. And that did not win me many points. As I said, my reading material at the time didn't help. I was reading one of Neil Stevenson's first novels from a good 25 years ago, called Zodiac. Now, I will admit that I stupidly avoided this novel in the past because I thought it was another story about these Zodiac mass murderers out in the western U.S. It's not. It's actually quite a good story about Greenpeace, just called the G organization here, an ecological disaster, and a rather good mystery, actually. The story is set in the post-Reagan decade, when the EPA did not yet have any teeth, although scarily we may be going back to that era with good President Trump. The protagonist of the story is a Greenpeace environmental chemist who tracks down toxic dumping from huge industrial companies and forces them to clean up their messes by shaming tactics in the media. If you read this book, you'll learn a boatload about not just environmental chemistry, but about some of the most toxic chemicals ever to be made by man, and some positive aspects of Greenpeace which you may have been ignorant of. Oh, and Zodiac refers to the Zodiac boats, which Greenpeace regularly uses for transport of their supporters. At any rate, all the book did in my hands was to build up a huge annoyance in me against the idiots who create barely tested toxic compounds, spray them on our foods, and then sit back and watch the profits roll in. I'm not really sure I can support the PGRSA anymore if it continues to be monetarily supported by these companies. Oh, and if you think my anger is misdirected, just listen to the first story of the evening. For years, scientists have been amassing evidence that neonicotinoids, these are insecticides meant to 
keep insect pests off of agricultural crops are also harming essential pollinators, that is, bees. But laboratory studies are limited and real-world simulations have been rather lacking. A new large field study was published at the end of June in the journal Science, and it largely confirms that neonicotinoids are indeed quite bad for bees. A three-country European field study led by Dr. Richard Pywell from the Center for Ecology and Hydrology in the UK reports that neonicotinoid exposure generally reduces the honeybee's ability to survive the winter and reduces the reproductive success of wild bees. In the European study, the researchers were interested in how the neonicotinoid exposure affects honeybees' ability to survive winter, since that's really the key to colony health, just how well they can survive the bad weather. In Hungary, the insecticide-exposed honeybee colonies had 24% fewer workers than control colonies after the winter. In the UK, colony mortality was so high, with numerous colonies totally wiped out, including many of the controls, that they could not statistically analyze them. In Germany, on the other hand, neonicotinoid exposure did not seem to affect honeybees' ability to survive the winter quite so much. Pywell says, quote, In Hungary and the UK, where we found this negative effect of neonicotinoids, the pollen load analysis suggested that canola plants make up a far greater proportion of the honeybees' diet compared to Germany. We think that actually influences the amount of exposure that bees are getting to neonicotinoids, unquote. Pywell finishes with, quote, I think it's reached a point now where no reasonable person would deny that these chemicals are impacting on bees one way or another. Obviously, scientists would like to do more research, but at some point, you have to make a decision. And it seems to me that a pretty obvious decision needs to be made. Unquote. The use of neonicotinoids on flowering plants has been illegal in the European Union since 2013, and the European Parliament is now debating an even broader neonicotinoid ban against all uses outside of greenhouses. And unfortunately, as usual, the United States is lagging way far behind. Thank you, U.S. Congress for once again ignoring really, really important environmental issues. Next story of the night. For those of you who follow Starship Sofa on Facebook, you may have noticed this story that was posted by one of our listeners, Steve Trower, several weeks ago. You may remember a couple of months back that I talked about a writer spoofing a predatory journal with a story based on an episode of the TV show Seinfeld. Remember, it was about the kidney disease where Jerry would die if he didn't urinate immediately? Anyway, Steve found a similar, more recent story of spoofing, and he thought I should hear about it. And I'm passing it on to you. See, the peer review process is a system that's used to weed out weak scientific research, using independent peers to check whether a study is legitimate or not, whether it's credible and whether it has decent quality but recent years have seen a rise in so-called predatory journals, where it's significantly easier to get past the reviewing process and have research quickly published, often for a small price, of course. 
to once again highlight the evils of predatory journals, a blogging neuroscientist who calls himself Neuroskeptic tricked multiple scientific journals into publishing a nonsensical piece of research dotted with massive factual errors, plagiarism, and Star Wars references. Neuroskeptic wrote about his experiment in a blog post for Discover Magazine last month. The hoax paper was all about midichlorians. You may remember midichlorians as the hated device that George Lucas created for his first Star Wars prequel, The Phantom Menace, to explain how some people could sense and control the Force and others could not. Midichlorians are supposed to be some sort of life form that allows for that Force ability. Ew. Anyway, the science articles that were submitted were about a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. The paper was submitted under the names Dr. Lucas McGeorge and Dr. Annette Kim. And it's pretty convincing-sounding neuroscience, mostly. But at one point, embedded in this so-called science jargon, the paper states, quote, Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagius the Wise? I thought not. It is not a story the Jedi will tell you. It was a Sith legend. Darth Plagius was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise, he could use the Force to influence the midichlorians to create life. Unquote. Apparently, four predatory journals fell for this sting. The International Journal of Molecular Biology, Open Access, the Austin Journal of Pharmacology and Therapeutics, the American Research Journal of Biosciences, Oh, and the American Journal of Medical and Biological Research also accepted the paper. However, they asked for a $360 fee up front, which the author declined to pay. This is not the first time, and probably won't be the last time, a journal has fallen for a setup like this. Earlier this year, a fake scientist called Anna Ozurst, Ozurst is fraud in Polish, managed to get on the editorial board of dozens of academic journals despite not even having any qualifications, or, well, actually existing. The shady practices of predatory journals are the dark side of open access journals. In the widest sense, open access means that you and I can read research online without having to pay a hefty subscription fee to the journal. Since they don't rely on subscriptions to generate income, they often ask researchers to pay a fee to publish. With the rise of the internet, the open access movement has gained huge momentum with more of these journals, seeing the novel as a more democratic way to spread knowledge and the fruits of research. However, as neuroskeptics' antics have highlighted once more, this idealistic system can be exploited. Next story. Darwin actually did more than just propose earth-shattering new theories. He was a real biologist. So in 1834, Darwin discovered fossils in Argentina from an odd creature later named Macrocenia pataconica by paleontologist Richard Owen, who examined the bones long after Darwin's return to England. Darwin initially speculated that the extinct animal might be a mastodon, but Owen believed it more likely resembled a llama or a camel. So over the years, fossil analysis has suggested that Macrocenia was quite large, possibly 10 feet tall, possibly weighing over a ton, with a camel-like body 
supporting Owen's view, and a short, elephant-like trunk for a nose. Unfortunately, even with the help of modern technology, scientists were unable to determine Macraucania's relatedness to any known species or to assign it to any specific evolutionary lineage. Now, doctors Mickey Hofreiter of the University of Potsdam, Germany, and Ross McPhee of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City have finally figured out where Macrocania lies in the evolution of mammals and what it may be related to. And they published their work last month in Nature Communications. They figured out all this by sequencing ancient DNA from partially fossilized bone specimens of Macrocania. McPhee says, quote, We had a difficult problem to solve here. Macrocania doesn't have any really close living relatives. Because ancient DNA is so degraded and full of unwanted environmental DNA, we had to rely on being able to use genomes of close relatives as a kind of scaffold to reconstruct fossil sequences. Unquote. McPhee says that in addition to no relatives, they had low-quality DNA from temperate areas. To make matters worse, so they devised a new approach involving repeated overlapping mapping that relies on using very strict parameters and the mitochondrial genomes of a number of living species as multiple reference points to more reliably predict the fossil's most likely genetic sequences. After initially mapping sequences from a distantly related modern species, the researchers generated a consensus sequence that they used as the new reference sequence. This consensus reference sequence was updated over multiple iterations of the mapping process until all available reads were mapped. And after careful optimization of the technique, the authors finally generated an assembly that covered about 80% of the Macrocania's mitochondrial genome. The says, quote, Our study found that the closest living relatives of Macrocania are in the placental order known as Parasyndactyla, which includes horses, rhinos, and tapirs, unquote. Having verified the taxonomy of Macrocania among known species, the authors used the mitochondrial sequence and molecular clock analysis to determine that the species diverged from other members of the order, Parasodactyla, about 66 million years ago. And this timing corresponds with the end of the Mesozoic era, which is marked by mass extinctions of dinosaurs, and the beginning of the current Cenozoic era. The next two stories are kind of related to each other, because they have to do with hair growth, which I'm finding of more interest as I grow older. The first hair story comes from the July issue of the journal Cell. Again, we have a story that suggests that microbiomes are important for some physiological reason. The story suggests that, well, microbes help your hair to grow. Huh. Well, older humans are especially obsessed with their hair. From grooming to styling to trying to regrow what's been lost, we spend lots of money, lots of time every year on our hair. Now, Dr. Tiffany Scharschmidt from the University of California reports about the strange relationship between bacteria and hair. Regulatory T-cells are a kind of immune cell that enables the body to tolerate commensal microbes. Scharschmidt has found a relationship between hair growth in these T-cells and bacteria. Scharschmidt first created a mouse bottle by removing regulated T-cells from the skin of mice. Then, she shaved a patch of skin on these mice, 
Mace and also on Wild Type Mace. And they were surprised to find that the hair did not grow back in mice that did not have any skin T cells. Using microscopic imaging of skin samples from mice with labeled T cells, Charschmidt found that T regs, as they're called, regulatory T cells, accumulated around follicle stem cells, and that the number of T cells in this area tripled as the follicles entered growth phase. Removing these T regulatory cells during the hair growth process had no effect, indicating that the cells are most important at the beginning of the growth phase, not when it's actually started. Mice without hair or those that were germ-free showed very little accumulation of T cells at their hair follicles. This further revealed how the presence of bacteria is essential to T cell accumulation and hair growth. No bacteria, no hair growth. Charschmidt found that when T cells accumulate at the hair follicles, they prompt stem cells in the area to express cytokine CCL20 and its receptor CCR6. Commensal microbes influence how T cells accumulate, which in turn influences CCL20 expression from hair follicles, ultimately affecting T cell migration. In short, commensal microbes push hair follicles to release a chemokine that directs these T regulatory cells into the neonatal skin, and then the T regulatory cells stimulate the hair growth. These findings offer further understanding of the microbe-host interaction as well as new insights into how the human microbiome affects hair growth and development. For us humans, whose hair is so precious and personal, this relationship might hit a little closer to home than previously thought. So the upshot is we need bacteria to help our hair grow. This is very cool, but probably not helpful at all for the follically challenged out there. So can anything be done to force your balding head to grow hair? Well, Dr. Chi Cheng Chen, Taipei Veterans Hospital, has also published a hair growth paper in the journal Cell last month. Chen suggests that micro-injuries to the scalp can actually stimulate hair growth. Chen points out that studies from as early as 1918 showed that plucking hair can potentially lead to regeneration but details of how this can happen have never been fully explored. Now Chen reports that hair stem cell activation depends on signaling from nearby follicles. Chen states, quote, By varying the spacing, arrangement, and shapes of plucked regions, we unexpectedly found that plucking 200 hairs with a proper topical distribution can cause up to 1,200 hairs to regenerate, unquote. For hairs plucked in regions greater than 6 millimeters in diameter on mice, there was no hair regeneration at all. Removing 200 hairs from a 2.4 millimeter region, which meant 100% of the hairs were plucked, the authors saw regeneration of only the missing hairs. But for regions 3 millimeters to 5 millimeters in diameter, the mice not only regrew the plucked follicles, but actually produced up to 1,300 new hairs surrounding the area that was plucked. Chen hypothesized that injured follicles produce a signal capable of traveling to the surrounding follicles. He reasons that the regeneration of plucked and unplucked follicles depends upon the threshold level of the signal, and that the response of the region would be determined by the density and position of other plucked follicles. In other words, 
this looks like classic quorum sensing. So what's quorum sensing, you may ask? Well, quorum sensing is a process by which cells or microscopic organisms work together in a community and make collective decisions in response to stimuli that affect only some of the members of that community. The phenomenon has been demonstrated in bacteria and yeast, and even in ants and bees. To explore the potential role for quorum sensing in hair regeneration, the authors looked at skin gene expression at four time points after plucking. The data showed that cells respond initially to plucking by releasing inflammatory cytokines, which recruit macrophage cells from the immune system to the injury. Gene expression changes also mirrored reactivation of hair growth pathways and an increase of tumor necrosis factor TNF-alpha. The authors confirmed the roles of a particular cytokine, called CCL2, as the initial distress signal sent by the damaged follicles and tumor necrosis factor alpha in promoting the actual hair regeneration. Chen believes that, quote, quorum-sensing circuit we describe in our paper provides a way for injured hair follicles to collectively assess the magnitude and extent of injury that the skin has sustained and make an all-or-none decision whether or not to regenerate, unquote. Presumably, this can be used to stimulate hair growth in be follically challenged. We shall see in the future. Perhaps plucking does have value here, although it sounds like it has to be done in a very precise manner in order to get the results that Chen has found. The last story of the evening would make a fan of the SF author Greg Bear jump up and down in excitement. Several decades ago, Bear wrote a short story and later a full-length novel called Blood Music. Blood Music is an amazingly prescient story in which the protagonist is able to take blood cells and use the DNA inside as computer memory storage as well as microscopic computers. This doesn't sound like much of a plot to begin with, but it gets interesting when the researcher's project is shut down and he tries to, well, kind of stupidly, smuggle out the programmable cells from his lab. So I have kind of put you on the edge of your seats now, right? Has somebody produced cell-sized computers? Eh, not really. However, a group of researchers have been able to make progress at storing memory information in bacterial cells, which, by the way, are even smaller than blood cells, and they have much less DNA, too. Dr. Seth Shipman of Harvard Medical School wants to turn cells into, well, little microscopic historians that will record information over time. He and his colleagues have published their results on this project in the July 12th issue of the journal Nature. Shipman released a short movie. I know at this point you're going, what, a movie? What are you talking about? But this movie was stored in a bacterial cell. It's a brief proof-of-concept movie, a sequence of images that illustrate how DNA can be employed to store digital information. And then played back again from living cells. Shipman says, quote, We envision a biological memory system that's much smaller and more versatile than today's technologies, which will track many events in a cell's life non-intrusively over time, unquote. This is an amazing idea. 
The ability to record such sequential events like a movie at the molecular level will be the key to sort of reinventing the very concept of recording using molecular engineering. In Chipman's scheme, cells themselves could be induced to record molecular events, like changes in gene expression over time, in their own genomes. Then the information could be retrieved simply by sequencing the genomes of the cells that it was stored in. And the title of their article in Nature was, quote, CRISPR-Cas encoding of a digital movie into the genomes of a population of living bacteria, unquote. Ha ha. So there, once again, we are in CRISPR-Cas territory. If you don't remember what that is, it's an enzymatic method that allows targeted rewriting of a genome of a cell. Among the editing possibilities that have been discovered or invented, CRISPR-Cas gives researchers the ability to write information into the genome of a living cell by the addition of nucleotides over time. Shipman explains how they use the editing system to store the movie in the bacterial cell. Quote, Here we use the CRISPR-Cas system to encode the pixel values of black and white images and a short movie into the genomes of a population of living bacteria. In doing so, we push the technical limits of this information storage and optimize strategies to minimize their limitations, unquote. The Harvard team first demonstrated it could encode and retrieve a single image of a human hand in DNA, and they inserted that image into bacteria. They then did the same thing, but with a series of similarly encoded and reconstructed frames of the classic 1870s horse race in motion sequence of photos, an early forerunner to moving pictures. So we're not actually talking uh, Titanic here or anything. We're talking a very simple series of, of photographic images which make up a, a very short movie. To create the movie, the researchers translated five frames from the original horse race movie into DNA. Over the course of five days, they sequentially treated bacteria with frame after frame of translated DNA. Afterwards, they reconstructed the movie with 90% accuracy by sequencing the bacterial DNA. In future work, Shipman says that his group will focus on establishing molecular recording devices in other cell types and on further engineering the system so it can memorize biological information. Shipman finishes with saying, quote, one day we may be able to follow all the developmental decisions that a differentiating neuron is taking from an early stem cell to a highly specialized type of cell in the brain, leading to a better understanding of how basic biological and developmental processes are choreographed, unquote. By the way, Dr. Shipman, you may want to avoid accidentally or purposely injecting any of those cells. Alas, like the protagonist of blood music, you never quite can tell what the results of that might be. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Make sure your scalp has plenty of bacteria. Be careful plucking your hairs, except under doctor's supervision. Start considering organic foods as an alternative. Keep washing the skies. I hope I've inspired some of you. Before I sign off, it's my understanding that this week celebrates Starship Sofa's 500th episode. 
I guess the Tony Smith and company in the end decided not to have any super special stuff going on as promised earlier. But I do want to say congratulations. I have been with the Starship Sofa crew for much of its voyage over these last few years, and I have been quite pleased in general with what has been created by all of us. Tony wants to see us go to a thousand episodes, which means another ten years or so of interstellar travel. Tony is a tough guy, and I have no doubt that he will hold out that long, along with the sofa. But we'll see if I hold out that long. At any rate, until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, I thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that, lad. <laughs> So that is show 501 put to bed. Like I say, these three shows to celebrate show 500, you know, go and have a listen to them. Some great, you know what I mean? Great stories all through Starship Sova. But it's just, for me personally, you know what I mean? Like kind of growing up with the science fiction there, you know, Haldeman, Silverberg and Harlan Nelson as well. Do you know what I mean? It's just just a tremendous little time in Starship Sova's history. You know, thank you everyone. That's kind of... Listened and been around, you know what I mean? I've made friends, you know, that have kind of stuck together longer than I've had friends in the in the real world, you know what I mean? And mean more to us, to be quite honest. It's just fabulous. So, listen, thank you so much, you know what I mean? We want to get, you know, like I say, Starship isn't going to go away. We're just kind of, <laughs> we ain't going away, no. But support her, do you know what I mean? That's all we ask, you know, go to Patreon, little sign up there, monthly donation. If you listen to this, you know what I mean? You get the Silverberg story there, man. We've got to pay these guys now, so, you know what I mean? Do the right thing and support one Patreon. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
catch myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 